Father, we are thankful that though it can be easily forgotten, Father, we have an opportunity that many don't to be in your word every week, to study it in this way. And Father, it, uh, it is the power to change us. And so many people, Lord, are seeking so many ways that their lives may improve, that they may see their problems solved and feel a comfort that uh, only comes from study of your word. And those things they seek, Father, are found in that book that they carry with them. But so often, Father, they don't bother to open it. Father, we never want to be like that. Let it always be, Lord, no matter where we gather, whether it's in this same group, whether it's in a much larger group. Father, whether we go our own ways and at some point, Lord, find ourselves in new groups, no matter, Father, what you may do in how you call us and how you direct, I pray, Father, that our desire will always be to be in your word and that as we remain in your word, Father, you will continue to honor our devotion to it by how you guide us and how you grow us. We thank you, Father, that this morning we find ourselves in Luke. We pray that the gospel, Father, will open itself by the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal what you've placed there for us. Guide us in all that we say and open our hearts, Father, to respond as you may direct us in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, from our study last week, we were at the first part of chapter 5 in Luke and we saw Jesus beginning to collect his disciples, the very first of his disciples. He brought to himself Peter, James, Andrew, and John. There'll be more to come, as you know, as we move through the Gospels, but at this stage, Christ has selected at least the first four of those that he's going to call to himself. And as before, Christ is still moving throughout the land of Galilee, now with four disciples, but always, of course, with a crowd, never by himself. He's become far too notorious for that now. And he's still proclaiming the kingdom, principally his purpose as he moves throughout this region and in the little towns that make up this region. His principal purpose is to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And he's here to do that. He's teaching with authority. He's teaching things that the crowd has never heard before in ways they've never heard. And, of course, as time and opportunity allow, he will also heal. He will come into cities and on occasion provide healing. And here we are again as we pick up in Luke chapter 5. In verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Well, we start up in chapter 5, verse 12, with Jesus again in one of the cities of the Galilee, though he's not specifying which city at this point in his account. Now, we know up to this point Christ has been teaching both in the countryside, he's also been teaching in the cities, of course, but obviously... The people that he's trying to reach are more easily found in the cities. So though he probably teaches in smaller settings from time to time, his principal desire is to find his way into the cities, into the synagogues we've already seen, and teach in those settings. But his word is spread of his healings, principally his healings now. Those are the things that get the most attention for probably obvious reasons. As word is spread of his teachings, they threaten to overshadow 
his main message, his teaching message. I mean, think about it. Crowds now, as they've heard about what he can do in the, in the realm of healing, have been drawn to him and they find him. They hear he's coming. Somebody may say, oh, that man Jesus, the healer, he's coming into town. That's immediately going to stir up the crowd. And as that crowd hears that he's there and rushes to him, it's unlikely under the circumstances and in the midst of all that excitement, it's unlikely that they're really going to give a whole lot of attention to the words that he uses, to the teaching that he gives. They're far more interested in getting his attention and trying to gain his favor and healing. And I want you to try to picture in your mind what that scene might be like. Jesus kind of moving in through the city, walking, of course, and crowds huddled around him, almost jockeying with one another for the chance to be the closest to him, for the chance to gain his attention. And as they uh, move around, he's not healing everyone. We've already said that. His, his principal purpose in going into these towns is not to heal. The healing is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And its end was, the end of Christ's ministry ultimately is to proclaim the kingdom, to proclaim who he is and what God is doing through him. And healing was means to prove himself as God, but it was not the principal purpose in him coming. So he's not healing everyone, though at, at times he does. And when he does, can you imagine how the crowd must just get stirred up in that moment when they see a healing? It's almost as though that has to come at the end of any teaching he's going to do because if he were to try to teach subsequent to a healing, he probably doesn't have anybody's attention anymore except for the chance to be healed. And Jesus, as you see in this account, has already had to contend with the problem of healing. And that that goes to the instructions he gave the leper. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want you to understand the difficulty this man, Christ, is having in carrying out his stated purpose, in carrying out his ultimate reason for being on earth. Now, Jesus here in this account, uh, as we begin, encounters a leper. And I don't know how much you may understand about the disease of leprosy. To get a better understanding of what's going on in this passage, though, I think you have to have some background. So we'll talk just for a moment here about leprosy. It's a widely misunderstood disease, even today, maybe even more so today in some respects. It still uh, infects about 1,400 people a day worldwide. So it's hardly a disease of ancient times. It's just as prevalent in some respects today. It's a bacteria, and once it comes into your body, it infects the entire body. It's part of your body's bloodstream for as long as it remains in your body. It prefers to grow in the colder parts of your body. It doesn't like heat. So it's going to focus on extremities, on fingers and toes and on nose and ears and things that are cooler than the rest of the body. And as it begins to grow, it begins to uh, change the color of your skin at the point where it's manifesting itself. And it tends to uh, create numbness at the points where it's growing. What's interesting, I don't think many people know this, it's very difficult to catch. Roughly 95% of the world's population are naturally immune. So even if you came into contact with it, your body would never contract it because your own system, your own uh, infectious control system, if you will, your white blood cells and the the like, are going to fight it off. Only about 5% of the world can ever get leprosy anyway. And if you're exposed to it and you're capable of catching it, it takes roughly 8 to 10 years before it actually starts to show symptoms. So you can be a carrier for an extended period of time. They're not real clear on how people catch it, but scientists today assume, based on what they know, that it's through nasal droplets. It's it's breathed in by the person who catches it, and it's given off by the person who has it by coughing or by sneezing. 
So it has to come in a very specific way. Somebody has to cough or sneeze near you and you have to breathe it in. Short of that, you're not going to catch it. You can't catch it by shaking hands with someone who has leprosy or by touching their, their body. It's not, it's not transmitted in that way. And as this disease grows in these parts of the body where it favors, it begins to essentially kill the nerve cells in that area of the body and take the color out of the skin. That's why it's often talking about somebody being, uh, having leprosy looking white. Because as it moves across the body, it turns the color of the skin white. Now the problem with leprosy is in the fact that it creates numbness. Anesthesia, basically. It basically anesthetizes the parts of the body where it grows. And that's a permanent change. It will kill the nerve cells in that area. But if your feet and toes, for example, lose their feeling, it's only a matter of time before you injure them and get infections, not knowing that you've injured them because you can't feel pain anymore. And that's why you see lepers without fingers and toes and with, with parts of their body, their, their nose and their ears, other parts of their body starting to, to uh, fall off or to be uh, basically deformed. It's because as those parts of the body grow numb and you injure them through normal use, you and I, as soon as we feel pain, we react and pull back, but a leper doesn't know that. And so a leper starts to lose their body parts to that kind of day-to-day contact with other things, with the normal injuries of life. Now, in its worst stages, it does begin to create deformities of the face and uh, the infections that begin to start in parts of the body begin to spread to other parts of the body. It eventually does result in death of the body if it goes on long enough. Today, it can be treated fairly easily. Within a few days after treatment starts, you're no longer contagious. And at worst, two years, they can take care of the disease altogether. Though anything that's done to your body can't be repaired. So it's it's important to be caught quickly. Now, because of the fear and the stigma in the time of Christ over those who had it, when somebody was diagnosed with leprosy, they became a pariah to the society. And under Jewish law, even, in Leviticus 13, the whole chapter of Leviticus 13 deals with how lepers are to be dealt with in the assembly, in the nation of Israel, in the tribe uh, that they are part of. And particularly in Leviticus 13, the emphasis is on whether they are considered clean or unclean. Just because you're a leper, you're not unclean under the law. But if you were in certain stages of the disease, open sores or other aspects of the disease, if you found yourself in one of these stages, you could be declared unclean and you were put outside the congregation. You were uh, essentially uh, quarantined from the rest of the the tribe or the rest of your family. But you could go into remission. There are stages of the disease where you're not as contagious or where it was not considered unclean, and you could be brought back into fellowship during those times. So the point of Leviticus 13 is not to declare someone altogether unclean, but to regulate where you stood in terms of cleanliness. And you could see why, if you understood the disease, it was an intent to help control its spread and to minimize how many people might be impacted. And because of the nature and the fear and the uncertainty about a disease like this, people who were lepers were generally treated very cruelly. They were generally, despite what the law provided for, the fact that they could be clean at points in time, they were typically never given that opportunity because people had a prejudice against them. It's also the case, though, throughout Scripture that leprosy is seen as a classic picture of sin. And that's important in this account as well. It's, in, it's actually a mistaken assumption that those who had leprosy were receiving God's judgment for sin. That was a common view in the Old Testament. Someone who was a leper got what they deserved, essentially, from God. Though it is a picture of sin in Scripture, it is not true that it is always a judgment of God of sin. For, for that, anyone could be a leper, if you think about it. 
Leprosy and sin, here's some of the comparisons that Scripture makes. Leprosy and sin, for example, are both more than skin deep. Leprosy shows itself on the skin, but it infects the whole body. Same with sin. The cleaning of the surface of the skin cannot correct leprosy, although it can be a treatment at times. No, no less, a covering of yourself with righteousness externally may give the appearance of cleanliness, but it can't change the true sin within. Both sin and leprosy eventually spread to the entire body, and where it goes, it defiles. Under the law, leprosy was something that made you unclean, and of course, sin is the same thing. Sin makes a person unfit for communion with God, apart from his sacrifice for sin. Eventually, the disease can reach a point where the skin is entirely white. The whole body turns white. And that happens in conjunction with one of those periods of remission. If somebody reaches the point where their whole body has turned white, typically they are at a point of remission, at least for the time being. And at that point, the law would declare them clean. Interesting, as they look white, they are considered clean. And we use a similar analogy when we talk about being clothed in white robes as a sign of righteousness. But unfortunately, that kind of remission does not last, and eventually the leprosy continues and kills the body. And uh, similarly, if we are able to, to clothe ourselves with the appearance of righteousness, if, if the inside of us has not also changed, eventually that outer clothing will be seen for what it is, merely temporary, not permanent. The bodies of lepers were always destroyed by fire, even their clothes were burned, and likewise those who die in sin will see the fires of judgment. These are all pictures of how leprosy and sin are, can be used as a comparison. But don't take the last step that they did in the Old Testament, which is to say, well, therefore, anyone with leprosy is receiving judgment for sin. Because that's not what Scripture tells us. These similarities that I've just pointed out don't mean that lepers are under any greater judgment than men. Leprosy was simply a picture of all men's sin, not just the sin of those who had leprosy. Now, in this account, the leper falls to his face before Jesus and says that Jesus could heal him if Jesus wanted to do so. And you can hear at least a couple of important thoughts in that statement. On the one hand, it's obvious what this man is trying to do. Go back in your mind to that scene I painted for you at the very outset. Jesus moving through a crowd in a city, a lot of excitement and hubbub around him being there, and probably in the midst of this crowd you're going to find people trying to differentiate themselves. I kind of think of the comparison if you've ever traveled in a third world country and you walk into a market square and the things that people will do to gain your attention in the hope that you'll buy what they're selling as opposed to what the guy next to them is selling. How they'll try to jump up and down or wave it in your face or try to you know, yell at you or you know, all the things you might do to gain someone's momentary attention and then if you have it, perhaps you can get them to be persuaded by what it is you're selling. And likewise here, you have to imagine dozens, if not hundreds of people, throwing themselves at Jesus, literally. Him trying to teach and having probably very little opportunity to do so in the midst of all that excitement. They're reaching in to touch him, and of course, they're yelling at him from the fringes of the crowd if they're not one of the people right next to him. All of them competing for the chance to be healed by this man. And then we hear about this, this leper who literally throws himself down in, in front of Jesus. Now remember, he's a... He's a man in the advanced stage of the disease by virtue of his description. You see in verse 12, there was a man covered with leprosy. This would be an indication of how advanced it is. It takes eight years for you to even show a symptom, and it takes many more years before it moves to this point. So here's a man who's probably already got deformities. He's probably already got visible signs. He's certainly got visible signs, probably gross visible signs 
of his disease. I can guarantee you he separated that crowd faster than anyone else could have. As he threw himself down in front of Jesus, no one was going to touch him. To touch him would have been considered to be made unclean yourself and to be defiled. Never mind the fact that they didn't understand how the disease was spread and they, the last thing anybody else wanted to do was catch what he had. So he gets a, a, a unique solo audience with Jesus for at least just a moment by virtue of the fact that no one else wants to be near him. And then he, he throws himself down, probably even blocking Christ's path. He says to him, in almost in a way that dares Jesus to heal him, he says, you can do this if you want to. You can heal me if you want to. And I think that's really the first thought that you should hear as you see him falling before Jesus. He is attempting to catch Jesus' attention and to give him some reason to respond. Anything at all to try to get Jesus to heal him. But then he says it in a very unique way. He says, you can do it if you want to. Jesus could heal him, he knows that, but only if Jesus wants to do it. And he hopes, as, he, as I said, that this will convince Jesus, maybe, maybe persuade him a little bit to go through with it. And that's where you get to the second point. The second thing to hear in this man's statement is, is, I think, a simple and clear statement of God's healing power and how it actually works in our lives. God can heal us if he wants to. God can heal us if he wants to. Sometimes I, uh, we, we know as we read scripture or in our own lives, we see God healing. We know that God wishes to heal, certainly on occasion, but we also know sometimes he doesn't. In fact, maybe if we were to do a survey, we'd probably come up with the conclusion that more often than not, he doesn't, for all the number of times he's asked. So the fact that he can, but the fact that he doesn't, makes clear that he doesn't always want to. And that's why this man posed the question the way he did. The fact that God answers no sometimes to our prayers asking for healing is simple proof that he doesn't wish that everyone receive healing. So then the more fundamental question is why? Why sometimes and why not other times? We know that there are people who live a lifetime with suffering despite their requests that God remove it. We certainly know of people, in fact, I'm sure most of us in this room know personally of people who have perished from their illnesses despite asking God to heal them so that they might avoid that outcome. And then we know of times, I'm sure as well, when God has answered yes. When we've seen healing that we can point to as supernatural. Or provision in some other way. But remember that even when God answers our requests to heal, we're still going to die someday. The fact that he answers our requests in a moment to heal our body doesn't take away from the fact that that same body is eventually going to succumb to something that kills it. Some disease. Some uh, trauma. Something is going to result in your death sooner or later. So the purpose of receiving, God, of receiving God's healing, his purpose in healing you, should he choose to do that, can never be, in and of itself, simply a matter of preserving our health. Because it's a pointless thing to do it. You see my point? You see what I'm getting at? If his point in healing you is because he wants to preserve your body, then that begs the question, why don't you never die? Why don't you live forever? The fact that he lets us die, the fact in, in fact that the scripture says we are appointed to die means that when he chooses to heal, it's not simply for the sake of preserving the body. He's already set you on a course where that body is going to fall apart and die. And therefore, he's never willing to make anybody's sinful body immortal. Nobody that we know of in a sinful body has ever lived forever. 
So when we ask for physical healing for the body, you have to understand, sooner or later, he's going to say no. Sooner or later, the answer to your request for healing is no. And that day will come. We don't live forever. So when we hear teaching that says our receiving of God's healing is conditional on faithfulness or in some way a measure of our faithfulness or our righteousness, that teaching is ultimately wrong. Ultimately putting a litmus test to whether God heals us or not is wrong. Because sooner or later, that teaching is going to be shown for the warped teaching that it is. Because when that person who up till some point has constantly been healed and healed and healed and oh, what a great and faithful person they are, when they die, what do you say? I guess their faith ran out. You see the absurdity of it, right? So we don't see God heal for the sake of the body. Because the body is already destined to fail. So why does God heal? And what would compel him to heal? When would he answer yes to the question that this man poses as he falls in front of him? God may heal, but only if he wills. And if he wills, he ultimately has some purpose other than merely preserving our physical bodies. He has some greater purpose in mind other than merely our physical bodies. He may be preserving our life longer so that we can complete some work that he's appointed to us. He may be healing us to give us an opportunity to learn of his mercy and his power and teach others of it. Be a testimony, in other words. He may heal some young woman so that she has enough time to give birth to someone that God has need to see born because of what God will do through that child. He may heal us merely for his own glory. But in any case, it's not our personal body's uh, uh, receiving of healing that is an issue. It is some greater purpose he's doing through us. And while a long physical life may reflect that God has been gracious to us, I mean, that's often the way it's seen in the Old Testament. Abraham lived a long time because of his uh, pleasing work of obedience to God. Same for Jacob. Same for Isaac. You hear that said in the Old Testament, and it's true. A long life is a blessing from God. And it can be, but remember, a long life or or a life that's devoid of all illness or all um, sickness is never a pure measure of God's love. Think of his own son. His own son did not live a long life. His own son died at a very early age, as did the apostles. Most of the apostles, short of John and I guess Paul, did not have a long life, trouble-free, particularly once they started in ministry. So my point in all of this is, as soon as we begin to break down things into such a simple rule that we can go around telling people, if you please God, you'll live a long time. If you're faithful, you'll always be healed. We've ignored not only the truth of Scripture, but we've, we've really stated a proposition that if you think it through to its end, is absurd. And it, it, it only serves to confuse the faithful rather than edify. But here Christ says he's willing. In the verses we read, he says he's willing to heal. So let's look at what purpose we might gain out of this example. What does he tell the man? What else does he say to the man? Well, Jesus, number one, says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that I'm going to heal you. Visit the priest instead. Visit the priest that he may declare you clean and then make an offering and do this as a testimony to them. Well, who's them? The priests. Here is an opportunity for Christ to send a man away healed from leprosy And you have to understand what Leviticus 13 provides for in order to fully appreciate what he's telling this man. I won't take you there because literally the entire chapter deals with leprosy and it's 60 plus verses. But that chapter, Leviticus 13, is a very detailed accounting of when a man should go to a priest 
why he would go and what the priest should do, all in regard to leprosy. In that chapter, the leper is going to be declared either clean or unclean based on the priest's assessment of the condition of his, of his disease at that point. So, if his disease had certain traits, if it was manifesting itself in certain ways, and he goes to the priest and the priest sees it, the priest would say, you're unclean, go outside the, the fellowship of the congregation. But if it changes and it gets better, you can go back to the priest, the priest takes a second look, makes a new decision, then he can be restored if he's judged clean. And in each case, this could be done off and on throughout the man's life. If he was clean, then he was going to respond with an offering. He was going to give thanks, in other words, to God that he had been given an opportunity to be restored, at least for the time being. So here we see Jesus wanting the Father to receive his rightful glory for healing this man. Because remember, Jesus healed him in the moment. But the response to that healing is no different under the law than if it had come any other way. The man has been healed and he's attributing that healing to God. Here it's just more obvious perhaps because his son himself is the one appointed to give the healing. But if the man had gone into a closet, prayed, come out of the closet healed, he still would have had the same response. Go to the priest, get yourself declared clean, give thanks to God for having taken the disease away, at least for the time being. Or in this case, probably permanently. That was what God asked him to do. And the text tells us the man promptly disobeyed. In fact, if you were to go to Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, this same account, Mark says something a little more specific. He says, The man went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So now you understand some of the rationale behind Jesus telling the man not to say anything about his disease. Jesus had been trying hard not to let his healings overshadow his real purpose in coming to teach. And so can you imagine now how difficult the situation is becoming for Jesus? Every time he heals somebody, despite his instructions, they go out proclaiming that they've been healed and it's that much harder for him to teach the next group because of all the excitement over the healing. We talked about this last week, if you remember. The fact that sometimes we're too busy seeking after what our flesh and our our life situations need, that Jesus has no choice at times but to distance himself from us, put himself on the boat in the example from last week, so that at least we'll be patient enough to hear the word, which is the real thing we need, the real thing with any power, and not seek simply after the temporal things, the bodily needs that we all come with. And if Christ had revealed himself entirely and exclusively through miracles, like the one we just saw here, then the excitement over the possibility of getting one of those miracles would have completely eliminated any possibility. It would have drowned out anything he might have said in terms of teaching, in terms of his true purpose in coming. His teaching of the kingdom wouldn't have been heard. His declarations of who he was probably would have been ignored. This is exactly, by the way, the same kind of problem that has handicapped the church from age to age and still handicaps the church yet again today. When we see churches or men of God who proclaim the ability to bring miracles, to bring healing, for example, to bring signs uh, into the fellowship, and they make that a prominent part of what they do on Sundays. I mean, it's certainly exciting, and there's no doubt it brings in the crowds, just as it would have in Jesus' day. But we're following after the same footsteps of this leper if we seize upon that and make that our focus and that the demand we have in order to be uh, a fellowshipper in Christ. In other words, if I don't see miracles, I don't believe you have anything to do with Jesus. We're following after this leper. And when we follow after our fleshly desires under the guise of spirituality, 
We're doing exactly the same thing that the crowds were doing in Jesus' day. We're ignoring the truth of God's word. We're distracting ourselves from it. And we're seeking after miracles that ultimately, because we know God's will is not to heal everyone, ultimately we are going to fall prey to somebody who is nothing more than a charlatan. Because remember, with enough emphasis and excitement and emotion and music, I can convince you that you've been healed, and you can become someone who would testify about it, though nothing spiritual ever happened. And in that, of course, the whole movement will spread. Meanwhile, we're missing the real miracle. You know, the real miracle takes place in places like this. As dry, as unemotional, as unadorned as this may be from week to week, the truth is the real miracle is taking place in each of our hearts at the proclaiming of God's word. It just doesn't result necessarily in you standing up and waving your arms and crying and falling down on your knees, though it could happen. More often than the case, it's in the quiet moments of our life that we realize that things are changing in us because of God's word. That's the real, real miracle. Christians, I think, fall prey to those who would draw them in with these promises of, of health and of miracles, not because miracles can't happen, obviously, and not because they're not something we ought not pray for, as God may lead, but because they can be manufactured and because they appeal to our fleshly desire, they can be misused. And because they can be misused, they will be. Just like that man, when a Christian would rather declare miracles of healing rather than than declare the power of God's word as a testimony, they're going to create a distraction. They're going to create a distraction that actually has the effect of pushing Christ away from the people and sending him outside the city. Because what I've done is I've given someone a desire and a hope for the wrong thing, and I've made the message of Christ through his word something that's harder to get through the noise, something that's no longer as exciting and appealing. It's worth noting, by the way, that movements in our church's history, going back over the last 2,000 years, major movements that drew people away from godliness in Scripture were often begun with groups who were seeking to find God in pleasures of life. In other words, they were looking for the miracles and the spiritual uh, emotionalism of their faith, and as they became attracted to that, inevitably they left the Word of God and godliness with it. Similarly, these movements, when they're finally corrected by some form of renewal or revival, that revival usually accompanies God's Word. God's word becomes the focus of the revival and that has the counterbalancing effect. I'll give you one example, probably the most obvious. As the camp of the nation of Israel sits waiting for Moses to return from the mountain, they stray into emotionalism and into a form of spirituality that was about uh, uh, reveling in the flesh. They were worshipping idols, they were participating in sexual immorality around those worship services. It was about food and indulging and in gross immorality the whole time under the guise of spirituality, and its correction came when Moses walked down with the mountain with the Word of God. And in a very visible, literal way, he throws it uh, at the idol. But in a less obvious way, the same thing occurs in the church season to season, when the emotionalism, when the excitement, all outside of God's Word, all driven by the flesh, is finally countered. It's countered by someone who brings the same thing we've always had, the Word of God, to break that up. And that's been the pattern. Go back, if you were to study history of the church, you'll see that the Reformation is no, no less an example of, a, of that same kind of correction coming because God's word became the focal point again in the faith. But this man's disobedience has made Jesus' ministry all the more difficult, and we hear that Christ has retreated and prays and, and desires to be alone again with the Father because he's in this state of 
incarnation, where he seeks after the Father's guidance. So let's move on now in Luke 5, chapter 5, verse 17. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now we've said already Jesus is teaching quite often in the crowd. That makes sense. And here he is again in a town. It's not specified here, although in the account of Mark we find out this is in Capernaum again. So he's come back into Capernaum. And he's probably in a setting, if you want to imagine for yourself the way homes were often built in this day, they're, they're fairly modest structures, uh, squares for the most part, maybe with an additional room built on. And sometimes these, these homes would all be constructed together such that they created an open area in between them, sort of a courtyard. And it's likely, based on the description here, that we're not talking about the roof of a house being cut through or in some way dismantled so a man could be let down into a home, it's more likely that they went up on the roofs of the homes surrounding a courtyard and used that as a vantage point to drop them down. So if you can imagine, this may be the way it worked, if Jesus is standing up next to one of the homes, maybe under an eave, maybe shadowed from the sun to some extent, and the crowd fills the courtyard, not being able to get to Jesus, they're right above him, and they literally draw, uh, drop this man down right in front of Jesus, sort of getting him to the front of the crowd instantly. And that would have been a very effective way, obviously, to get Christ's attention, which was the whole point. And as he's teaching to these people, probably, as I said, common people, his notoriety is still increasing every day. He now has become competition for the other religious leaders of their day. So, not, you know, at first, as Jesus walked through the towns of Galilee preaching, he was ignored by the religious leaders. He was a nobody. But as word spread of what he was doing, probably more of what he was doing than what he was teaching, he eventually got the ear of religious leaders. We hear at the beginning that these are Pharisees and teachers of the law, scribes in other words, and they're coming from all over, Galilee, Judea, even Jerusalem. This would be somewhat like uh, someone teaching uh, in the area of Greece and word getting back to Rome and the Pope sends some of his own men from, from Rome, from the Vatican itself, to come check on this teacher. That's how... That's how important it is to hear that they've come even from Jerusalem to hear what's going on. It says Pharisees and teachers. Really, I want you to get an impression here. We're probably talking about several groups, not just Pharisees. The Pharisees were really a political party in Jesus' day. I want you to get a picture in your mind. They're essentially the, uh, the ultra-Orthodox Jews who followed the law to a T. They would be like the extremist Republican right view, if you will, in today's world, the, the very staunchly conservative Jewish political party. They took great pride in their adherence to the law, and they held themselves up to be social judges of righteousness, to be the ones that, the rule keepers, the rule enforcers of the society. Now, the, the other men that are mentioned here, the teachers of the law, they're probably the scribes. A scribe was one who had the official duty of interpreting the law and of interpreting whether something that was done in society was under the law or how it fit. They were the ones that even today Jewish 
authorities have men whose, rule, whose job it is to declare, is it, law, is it considered work to use a, a computer for email on Sundays? To try to take what is common in culture for that day and fit it under the law written hundreds thousands of years ago. That's what a scribe would have done. There were other groups like Sadducees, members of the Sanhedrin. They're probably all there represented one way or another. And they saw Jesus as a threat because he taught principles that made the leaders essentially look like hypocrites. The hypocrites that they were, in fact. They uh, were men who used right words and followed righteous practices, but they did so outwardly. And they were men who were as corrupt inwardly as the rest of the world was. And it probably didn't take very long for the men and the women of that day to see through their show of hypocrisy, their outward spirituality. Now, it's also true that the men themselves were probably greatly disliked. Pharisees, I mean, when you think about it for a moment, anyone who makes his job enforcing whether or not you're living your life according to the law is, is a bi- basically a busybody, a nosy person, who is never coming into your life to give you encouragement, but only criticism and correction. Pharisees were not people that other people liked. But they were held in high esteem, and they were generally praised, and they were generally given a lot of deference, but it was because of what people could get from them, and because the favor of a Pharisee could go a long way toward helping you in your business or in some other aspect of your life. So they were treated nicely, but not because people liked them, because people wanted something from them. They were known to be hypocrites, men who sought praise. We'll study more about them later in the Gospel. And so you must have believed that the crowd would be overjoyed any time Jesus stuck it to one of these guys, right? Probably secretly so. They probably weren't sitting there going, you get them, Jesus. They're probably being very quiet about it, but inwardly they're thrilled every time Jesus took it to these guys and threw it back at them. And particularly if he could do it on the basis of the law, because there was nothing these men prided themselves more on than their knowledge of the law and their application of the law. So anytime Jesus turned the law against them, that was double good. That was really the height uh, of, uh, of the crowd's excitement to see that done. So here we are. Let's examine this first encounter recorded in Luke. And it's also worth remembering for ourselves that as we study this account, we ourselves have no special claims to righteousness. This is this is one of the things I think the church has to always guard itself against, is that we ourselves become essentially pharisaical. Or we often talk about Christians being holier than thou, or being self-righteous. These are all conditions that mirror what the Pharisees themselves were doing under the law. I mean, we're all destined for perfection one day, but we ain't there yet. And short of the day of our glorification, when we truly will be perfected by the power of God, in the meantime, the best way to consider yourself, I guess, could be summed up by the way a famous bumper sticker says it. Not perfect, but forgiven. Have you seen this sticker? Um, Christians aren't perfect, but they're forgiven. You can't witness on the basis of how good you live your life. Not many try, but it's interesting to me how often we subtly slip into that mode if we're not careful. How often we're going to try to convince someone that being a Christian is good because look what it's done to me for my life. Look at my life as the example of what could be for you if you were a Christian. The problem with doing that, of course, is sooner or later we fail in our life. Sooner or later there are things in our life that people don't want to share in. And then there goes your witness. You don't sit and listen to me, for example, because you've determined that my life is full of righteousness and you can't wait to emulate it. I know my wife doesn't sit here for that reason. And if you all have any misconceptions of your own, let me put those to an end here. 
If we're ever tempted to justify our faith on the basis of our favor, we're not going to win converts. Because if they know us for any length of time at all, they'll put aside any desire for what we have. In fact, I think people see through that hypocrisy so quickly that in the end, if that's the way you choose to witness to other people, sooner or later, uh, you're simply going to reaffirm their belief that all religion is merely an act. And you're just another one of the actors that they've met. Furthermore, I also think God's not going to reward that kind of ministry. If your ministry is based on preaching to people how good life is because of your example in that life, God's not going to gain glory through any witnessing that might succeed under those terms, and he won't reward it because it does not give him glory. Rather than placing the emphasis on our own efforts, I think all the credit we simply give to the Holy Spirit for any measure of success we have, and we don't use our behavior as the argument for the truth of the gospel. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. You use your hopelessness in your condition as the argument for the gospel. The depravity of your sin, the offense that it is to God, and the fact that he will not give his presence over to sin, and therefore only the perfect solution of his own son, could be an answer to our condition. You see how that works? Rather than saying, look how good I am, or anything that might come from your faith, you turn it around and you say, I am a hopeless sinner, and therefore I had no opportunity for God's fellowship other than the one he provided through his son. And likewise, the same for others. The other fascinating observation you're going to see as we look in Luke's account here is in verse 17. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, Jesus was capable of healing in this moment because the Father had given him that ability here. You know, Luke is doing this constantly. We've seen this several times already. He's constantly emphasizing the humanity of Christ and particularly how Christ truly did limit himself when he took on human form. The incarnation meant that Christ no longer had the power he used to have, not as long as he stayed in this form. If Jesus could have healed at any time by his own initiative, then this statement in verse 17 makes no sense. It only makes sense if his healing is solely the prerogative of the Father, who then grants that authority to his Son through the Holy Spirit, at times and at points where God the Father wishes that healing take place. Christ is completely dependent on the Father now in the form he's taken. And therefore, the remarkable thing to consider is that this same source, this same way that God the Father kept Christ able to do what he did, is the Holy Spirit. That same source is in us. We literally have the same source of power Christ had in the ministry God gave him as he went around. But just as the Spirit answered to the Father in what he would allow Jesus to do, the same Spirit today answers to the Father in what he allows us to do. Here's where Christians get off the mark again. Because I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me, therefore anything I declare will be true, as long as I use the name of Jesus. That's patently false. Try it. When it fails, you'll wonder, well, what went wrong? Did I not use the right special words? Did I not have enough faith? No, it's if God wills. I mean, if Christ himself was dependent on the will of the Father to grant him the capability to heal, then who are we to sit around thinking that in some way we can conjure up God's power to serve some purpose we have in mind simply because we have the Holy Spirit in us and we declare it in Jesus' name. That's false teaching. It requires the will of the Father be there before anything will happen. John 14.10, Christ says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Christ himself saying that. 
So Jesus is teaching here, probably again in this open court, among a group of connected houses. And all these people have gathered around him to be healed. And as always, you've got to work hard to get to the front. And here's a man who's on a cot. He's on a stretcher. No hope to get to the front in his own power. And so, I think it's fair to say, and this man is just a good example of it, the degree of effort you're willing to put in to get to the head of the line is probably a rough measure of the degree of faith you have that the healing will actually occur. Let me think about it for a minute. If you have any doubt at all that this man can heal you, how hard are you going to be willing to work to get through a crowd who's equally desiring to be there and get to the head of the line and be healed? It's a measure of how sure you are that healing will take place, that you work hard to get there. And that's what Christ is recognizing in this man. The fact that he is willing to find four people and convince them to help him get to that spot. Because remember, it's not the faith of these four that Christ is crediting. It's the faith of the man himself. So presumably, he's had to cajole them, bribe them, argue with them, whatever he had to do to get them to do this thing. So consider how difficult it was. It'd be one thing for you to get enough initiative of your own to convince yourself to push through that crowd or to fall down from a roof. But this guy had to have enough faith to convince four other people who, to be just as sure that it was worth the effort to do what he did. That's a measure of how much faith he had that if I got to that front of the line, that was the hard part. Getting there is the hard part. Once I'm there, the rest is a guarantee. That must have been the essential view this man had. And then, as he drops down in front of Jesus, I, I, maybe it's just me, but I, I kind of imagine that Jesus is teaching, and as this thing just falls down in front of him, he just stops mid-sentence, watches them lower this guy, and a smile must be on his face. Like this, part of this just seems so natural to me that he would just be smiling at how hard this guy is working to get there, how audacious it was to do this, and just plop down in the front of his teaching and stop him in mid-sentence. But then he says something very unexpected. In verse 20, Jesus says, Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. In 21, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason and say, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And there is no doubt that everyone in that crowd was instantly surprised at Jesus' response. Your sins are forgiven. The natural thing you'd expect Jesus to say is, okay, good try, you're healed. What he says, though, is, no, your sins are forgiven. And it appears, based on the way the text plays it out, that Jesus was prepared to stop at that point and not go any further, which is an interesting lesson for us in and of itself. Though he does eventually heal this man, and clearly we understand why as we go through the text, just stopping at verse 17 or verse 20 for a moment, understand that God's grace to you can be no more than forgiveness of sin. There is no greater grace He can give you than the forgiveness of your sin. That if nothing else ever happens, if you never get rich, if you're never beautiful, if you're never married, if you're never with children, if you never have all the things you think make life worth living, the fact that you've been forgiven of your sins means you've already had the height of grace God has available for you. The rest of it is just icing on the cake, literally. And, second thing to note is, as we study through why God chose, why Jesus chose to heal this man, you notice in the response of the man, the whole point of the man being healed was so that God would be glorified. 
both by the man himself and by those who watched it happen. Which itself is a lesson that should God choose to take another step beyond forgiveness of sin and grant you some other way, some other form of blessing, ultimately that additional step of grace, of blessing, is intended to give God glory. As is your own salvation for that matter. It is not for you, it is for Him. And when we make it all us-centered, we-centered, we've taken what, it, what our faith is meant to do and turn it on its head. Rather than glorifying God, it glorifies us. And God is not inclined to grant us those kinds of wishes. Let's look at the crowd's reaction and particularly God's, uh, Christ's exchange with the Pharisees. And this will be the way we conclude for this morning. I have to believe as the man first heard Jesus' words, he's laying on this cot, he's thrilled at how he managed to get to where he thought he wanted to be, and the thing he hears Jesus say is probably not the thing he was expecting to hear, and I, I almost wonder if for a moment on the cot he wasn't disappointed. Okay, that's great. Now, what about the healing thing? You know, he's lying there with, okay, but isn't there anything else you want to say to me? And the crowd, meanwhile, is going to be confused because if they're Jewish and if they have any training in the law at all, then they would have been very confused that his efforts to jump in front of Jesus would have resulted in the awarding of forgiveness of sin. They would have been very confused about... the Because remember, in this day, particularly under the teaching of the Pharisees, there was great confusion about the relationship between faith and works. So they would have been confused as to why this work warranted a forgiveness of sin. Never mind the fact that they would have been confused about whether Jesus himself had the capacity to forgive sins. You know, that's another issue altogether that the Pharisees raised. But even before you deal with that, just consider for a moment what you as a member of that crowd would have been thinking as you wondered, well, that's what it takes to earn forgiveness of sins? To, to drop yourself in front of this man? What is it these guys did that proves them worthy of forgiveness? Because remember, under the law, what did you have to do? In their way of thinking, as they understood the purpose of the law, they assumed it to be to remit sins, when in fact it was never intended to remit for sins. But they understood it as being complex and burdensome and lifelong and a lot, lots of things the law required that you do. And here's one man who pops down in front of Jesus on a stretcher and that's all it takes. It would have been a very confusing element for the, for the crowd in that moment. And then, of course, there are the leaders. The leaders are incensed. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a good teacher and, and maybe even a prophet, which they may have been prepared to, to say that Jesus was. Uh, but only God can forgive sins and so to them, Jesus had now crossed the line and was speaking blasphemy. And in one sense, they're right. In the sense that God, it is true, is the only one who can forgive sin. Because, ask yourself this question, why can only God forgive sin? Why can't a man forgive someone else's sin? Well, because sin is an offense against God. By definition, a sin is an offense against God. So, it is the God that we've offended is the same one that we must satisfy. It is the God who is offended by our sin who must then be satisfied of some remission or of some payment before we can truly say that sin is forgiven. You know, if you're offending the creator of the universe, the creator of everything that is in the universe, your very maker yourself, that, that's an unwise move. All right, This is a point of future advice. Offending the one who made you and all that's in the world is, is unwise. But of course, we've all done that. And continue to do that. And so if you're looking for forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that will actually allow you to sleep at night, the actual, you know, the kind of forgiveness where you actually know the creator of the universe has in fact forgiven you, well, you can't settle for anything less than that. 
If I tell you you're forgiven of sin, but you know it's the God of heaven that's offended, not me, you shouldn't take any comfort in my statement that you've been forgiven of sin. In fact, you ought to see it for what it is. It's nothing but a false form of security. Now, if I represent that God has forgiven you, and I can point to God himself stating that, well, then you have some assurance from the right source. And in that way, I represent God, perhaps. But if my own initiative and of my own power, can I say God has forgiven you? Absolutely not. Only by his word can I state what God has said with regard to your sin. You know, that's why a priest, for example, when he assures the confessor that a God has forgiven him of anything, unless that same priest can point to God's own word and show the proof of that and that the person's faith is consistent with what the test that Scripture requires, then really anything he says is, is worthless. In Acts 5.30, this testimony is given. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So, Acts tells us that it is the Father's choice that through Christ he would have the opportunity to grant forgiveness of sin. But of course, the leaders here, although they were right in one sense in saying that only God can forgive sin, they were completely wrong, ultimately, in their assessment of Jesus because they didn't understand that Jesus was God, though he declared it here plainly. Jesus said that he had the power to forgive because he was the Son of God. Specifically, he uses Son of Man. Luke is the primary gospel writer to use that phrase. It comes out of Daniel. And in the prophet Daniel's book, the Son of Man is a phrase originating from that book, which is messianic. It is a specific phrase referring to the Messiah. So Christ himself is drawing from a messianic phrase out of the Old Testament to declare himself to be the Messiah, God himself. But of course, that's something the Pharisees are never going to acknowledge. It's interesting to me that Luke records that these accusations being made by the Pharisees, they were thinking them. They weren't saying them. And that makes sense, actually. This is a crowd that loves Jesus. You're not going to start criticizing him amongst this crowd. Pharisees were very careful in that regard. They rarely criticized Jesus in the moment because they were afraid of the crowds. But they're thinking it. And Jesus says to himself, or says specifically, that he knew their thoughts, and so he kind of answers back, despite the fact that they hadn't said anything, he answers back in his typical style, his typical rhetorical style. He asks a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question, by the way, is a question you don't expect anyone to answer. You throw it out there because the answer is obvious. And, of course, these men weren't going to answer it. Christ says this. He says, which is easier? Saying that sins were forgiven or saying stand up and walk? In other words, healing him. Which would be easier? And this is what he's getting at. For a mere man, for someone who is nothing but a man, saying that sins were forgiven is easy. Just like the priest example we use. Saying the words takes nothing. Because it's only words. Forgiveness of sins can't be seen. I can't prove to you or disprove to you that you've been forgiven of your sin. There's no conclusive way to demonstrate that my declaration is true or false. So, even though in reality it's a worthless statement for a man to declare another man's sin forgiven, and that's exactly what the Pharisees are pointing out, I could do it and never worry about whether you could prove me wrong. I could essentially go on with the, with the farce, and you would never have a way to tell me that I wasn't right. So, in that sense, the words are easy. Your sin is forgiven, and you could go away feeling good about yourself, even though it's a worthless statement. That same man, that same man who can easily say sins are forgiven... There's no way that man could say stand up and walk and expect it to work. 
That's hard, because it's very easy in the moment for someone to say, okay, let's see if it worked, and I can prove you wrong quickly. So God, Jesus is saying, well, it's easy for a man to say this, it's impossible for a man to do the other. But on the other hand, God, for God, both are equally easy. God can easily declare your sins are forgiven because it's in his power to do so, but he can also just as easily say to somebody, stand up and walk. For God, they're equally easy statements. You know, when God says you're forgiven, there's no more discussion. It's done. It's done just as certainly as when that man stood up and walked. There's no waiting to see if it works. There's no test that has to be passed later. God doesn't change his mind so that when he says you're forgiven, it's eternally true. It's not just for now. It's not just for what you have done. It's for all time, all that you've done, permanent. It's his word. Once he has stated it, he cannot change his mind. You are forgiven, period. That's the assurance of salvation. And similarly, if God declares someone to be healed physically, it's going to happen instantly. And he's going to show it by standing up and walking. Remember, God's word is reality. He spoke the world into existence with his word. He commands it by his word. His word is instantly true. The moment his word exists, the reality of it is true. So Jesus asked the Pharisees, which is easier? And of course, his point is, is if Jesus were merely a man, only the first statement would be easy. The second one would be impossible. But for God, they're going to be equally easy. And so Christ says, stand up and be healed. And what an astounding sight it must have been for that crowd, for this man they'd always known in a cot, to just stand up. You know, it, you can almost kind of see it in a matter-of-fact way. He just stands up, picks up his cot, walks out, glorifying God. And they were all gripped with fear, we're told. Fear because I think they may have begun to understand that Jesus was not merely a man, but they're not sure who he was. And I'm not sure they knew what to make of it. Though the Pharisees understood instantly, this was not somebody they were going to bring down easily. But though that crowd and those, those men didn't know what to make of it, we do. We should know, based on what we're reading, exactly what to make of it. Jesus was not a man alone. He was the Son of Man. He was the Son of God. As we end today, I, I want to remind you, sometimes we read stories in the Gospel, and because it all happened so long ago and so far away, uh, I think it's easy to believe that we're never going to get any closer to these stories than we do right now on the page of the Bible in front of us. That forevermore it's going to be as distant uh, for us as it is right now. A story that we can only begin to get our mind around. But you've got to remember, all men, and I'm talking about all believers and all unbelievers, will one day, and I would argue probably not that far in the future, are going to kneel before the very same man we just read about. The very person you're trying to imagine, you're trying to see in this setting, that very person in all his glory will be before you and you will be kneeling before him. Isaiah 45:23 says this, I have, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Philippians 2:10, Paul says it this way, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've heard it said, and I think it's a great phrase, there's no such thing as an unbeliever. There's only not yet believers. And it'd be so much nicer, so much better for them and for the world if we lived every day with this thought that we might be used by the Father to bring someone to know Him now, 
while that person still has an opportunity, rather than waiting for them to know him on the day of their judgment. Because they will know him. And they will know him for who he is one day. Our calling in this little church is to be a part of how God may bring men and women to know him now. Preferably soon. And to that, he gets the glory. Amen. Let's go to prayer. Father, thank you so much that you've impressed upon the hearts of each man and woman here that you are real, that we should know you, and that by knowing you, Father, we have an opportunity to be forgiven. Father, I pray that there would be many more who, by our testimony, could come to know you as well. Father, we study you in your word. We study what we hear you teaching and about the reaction that many had to your teaching. Father, I pray that our study, though, would never be from a distance that we would never sit back and confident that we are sure of what's true and confident, Father, that we know all that's happening and, and somehow put all these stories, Father, simply as uh, things removed from our own experience, that we would somehow, Father, only see the Scripture as things that we can talk about with other people from the standpoint of, of a story, knowledge, purely for the sake of knowledge. I pray, Father, that instead as we study your Word, it would impress upon us something into action, that we would have a cause, Father, a desire to go out from this place and put what we know to work, that it would give us pause, Father, to consider our own lives and whether we are living it truly the way we should. It would help us rearrange our priorities, Father, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we would make the right choices in what we do and where we go. Most of all, Father, as we take steps in the weeks to come to broaden our reach, to bring others to perhaps fellowship with us. I pray, Father, that the work you've done in us for the last two years will see fruit, the fruit, Father, of commitment, the fruit, Father, of sacrifice and obedience, the fruit, Father, of love above all things, that we might welcome those who would join us and that we might be able to minister to them and witness to them, that we might, Father, be able to do all the things you call us to do. I pray, Father, you would continue that work of preparation even as you now prepare the hearts of those who might come to join us. We pray for them, though we don't know them yet, Father. Let all that we do, Lord, be to your glory, so that no matter how much or how little you may choose to grow us, we may never do anything other than rejoice and praise you for your work, and that we would be humble, Father, that we have been used by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.